0: Welcome back. After a long hiatus, KEI's podcast, Korean Context, has returned. We look forward to covering issues on the Korean Peninsula and beyond. In 2023, KEI has set out on its Rethinking Korea initiative, which explores the evolution of U.S.-Korea relations, Korea's place in the world, and rapid changes in Korean society itself. I'm Clint Work, Fellow and Director of Academic Affairs at KEI, and today I have the distinct pleasure of conversing with someone who was both present for, but also a direct participant in, the evolution of U.S.-Korea relations. Rob Rabson served as a diplomat and Foreign Service officer for 39 years, from 1982 to 2022. During his time in the Foreign Service, Rob served in a range of positions focused on Korea, including as Vice-Consul in the U.S. Embassy in Seoul and the U.S. Consulate in Busan from 1984 to 1986, as Senior Trade Officer and Deputy Economic Counselor in the U.S. Embassy Seoul from 1997 to 2000, then as Director of the Office of Korean Affairs in Washington, D.C. from 2012 to 2015, and then as deputy chief of mission in the U.S. Embassy in Seoul from 2018 to 2021 and finally as charge d'affaires or acting ambassador in the U.S. Embassy of Seoul from January to July of 2021. in addition Rob served in Japan India Afghanistan and throughout Southeast Asia Our conversation is split into two parts, the first of which focuses on Rob's time before joining the Korea Desk in 2012. The second part covers his time at the Korea Desk up to the present day. So, uh, without further ado, um, we're very excited to have you here. Uh, Rob, um, you know I, I don't know how you can possibly cover well. The truth is, you can't. Uh, Thirty-nine years of a foreign service career in one conversation, um, but we're going to do our best. And one way, as you know, I I wanted to organize this conversation was around the several really key points in time where you uh, were posted uh, either in U.S. Embassy Seoul or uh, were working Korea from the State Department here, just down the street in Washington DC, but also, of course, uh, make reference and, and engage the wide-ranging experience you had being posted elsewhere in Asia, or the Indo-Pacific as we now call it, um, and also working other countries from state, um, which provides its own perspective, but I'm sure I would think informed how you viewed Korea, the various times uh, you reconnected with it. and so. Our conversation is uh, intentionally both retrospective, mm-hmm. sort of to take a proper historical view, um, but also to bring things forward to the contemporary environment and think prospectively, um, You know, think about where we are and where we might be headed, um, particularly in this, this year um, that marks the 70th anniversary of this longstanding alliance relationship between the United States and South Korea. So uh, to get right into it, but to go back first... Um, I wanted to start with uh, the first time you were in Korea, which was as uh, vice consul in the U.S. Embassy Seoul and the newly created uh, consulate in Busan from 1984 to 86. Uh, and for Korea watchers, uh, this is should be a familiar history. This was a very interesting time in the country's history. Um, it was still a dictatorship. Chun Doo Hwan was still firmly in power, but he had promised to step down at the end of his seven-year term in 1987 and to hold elections. Uh, Seoul's uh, remarkable economic growth, of course, had had been continuing apace, and the government was beginning to slowly and, and very deliberately, and in a calculated manner, sort of loosen some of the political controls as it prepared to hold the Asian Games in 1986. And then even most importantly, the Olympic Games in 1988, it's sort of coming out um, to the world, uh, sort of staging its modernization and growth for the world, much like uh, Tokyo had uh, several decades before that. Um, And this was also a period, of course, where the South Korean people were making more overt demands for their political and civil rights. And anti-American sentiments were more robust and outspoken, uh, really, than they'd ever been. So there is sort of this maelstrom of of different forces. And so the first question I wanted to ask was just what was your impression um, during this period and did you come to Korea with any preconceived notions that were either proven right or immediately dispelled and like sort of what surprised you about the country?
1: Yeah, no, well, thanks, uh, Clint. It's great to be here to have this uh, conversation uh, reflecting on my career, but hopefully more importantly drawing from it. Maybe some of the lessons I've learned, experiences I've had that can help better understand maybe some of the, the time I was in Korea, but also looking forward, as you pointed to, uh, maybe there are some lessons I can tease out or at least put out there for consideration. But I really didn't become aware of uh, of Korea or Korea didn't become uh, come into contact with me until really... Uh, Looking back on until uh, late '79, I had just graduated uh, with a degree in international relations from Penn State University, and was uh, had taken the uh, the foreign service test. But back in those days, the process was a long one. Uh, in fact, it took almost three years uh, before uh, I was inducted into the mm-hmm. foreign service, given the. Uh, the procedures, including the security clearances, which in my case took longer because I lived overseas than much of my earlier life. But anyway, uh, the first point of contact that I can consciously remember was uh, in October of uh, '79, and I was up in uh, Stoughton, Massachusetts, staying at my parents' house and driving my father's car down the road, and the radio was on, and there was a news flash said uh, the president of Korea had been assassinated. Mm end of October. It turned out to be October 26th. And I took note of it. Of course, I had studied Asian history and was aware of Korea uh, in some respects. But, you know, it was just one country, part of a larger region that I was interested in. So that was the first data point. Lo and behold, three years later, I'm entering the Foreign Service. And in identifying, they give you somewhat of a choice when you look at your first onward assignments. And believe it or not, Korea was not my top choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, it was number three. Uh, Ahead of that was uh, Guangzhou and uh, Taipei. And for some reason back then, I wanted to learn Chinese. Mm. But I got neither of those. So they said, well, you know, not getting your first or second choice isn't the end of the world. We could send you to Korea. And I said, okay, sure. Um, Yeah. So uh, I got selected for Korea and began Korean language training, six-month process before going out as a first tour officer. And it was through that six months of language that the indoctrination, both language skills as well as area skills and awareness of Korea began in a hurry. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I got out to uh, Korea in February of 1984. Just a little scene setter though, uh, and just a reflection of the environment or description of the environment uh, I was heading into out in Korea, and not even talking about the domestic political scene. Was that the Cold War was really on, still on back then in a a big way. And the North Koreans were being North Korean-like in a very big way as well. Four months before I got on the plane to come out, the Russians shot down KL-7. That's right. uh, Over, uh, I think, uh, near Sakhalin Island when it got off course. Uh, And just earlier in that year, the uh, the North Koreans blew up half the cabinet. Uh, Chun doo cabinet in Rangoon. Hmm. In fact, I was having lunch uh, a month or so ago with uh, the current Korean ambassador to Washington, Cho Tae-yong. Hmm. And uh, we were talking about our time. He came into the Foreign Service at the same time I did. Uh, but of course, his uh, most memorable early on experience was a tragic one. Uh, his father-in-law was part of the cabinet that was blown up. Uh, in Rangoon and this is an 83 and then of course you also had the uh, there were some bombings uh, elsewhere aircraft were brought down so it's a tense and uh, terse environment it was the Cold War personified in many respects on the Korean Peninsula, with the armistice still very much in my, So I arrived in February of '84, uh, and uh, overwhelmed by the uh, you know the experience, uh, the the smells, the sights. Uh, I remember taking in. And I'm not sure you would have experienced it uh, in the late 2000s, but uh, the smell of Yontan, the brick briquettes for heating. It was there. You could very much taste it. But you could also smell and taste the, the chestnuts being grilled on the uh, on the sidewalks. And when I'd walk from our housing compound over to the embassy every morning, there was these stands and they'd be grilling uh, the chestnuts. And it was quite the aroma. Uh, I have a fondness now for, uh, for the grilled chestnuts. So they, You don't see those stands as much mm-hmm. uh, these days in Korea, but it's a throwback of sorts. But anyway, as you described, I was in Seoul for one year and then I moved down to Pusan for uh, my second year in the newly opened consulate. Uh, as a vice-consul two-man operation. And um, in Seoul, I uh, made my way around the consular section, doing visas, doing American services, and other sundry duties. And uh, I'd say, in reflection, looking back on the the year in Seoul, and of course the year in Pusan, uh, those consular experiences were lasting. You, we had encounters with individuals, with cases, uh, heartfelt cases, tragic cases that you were there to uh, adjudicate whether someone could go to the U.S. or not, helping a family with a death, death case. And those stick with you, mm. you know, person to person. So I, I can recall quite a few of, uh, of those experience and interactions in the visa section. Not all of them were positive, uh, but I can certainly say almost all of them were character building. So I started out in Korea. And then, of course, I think, as you know, as my resume points out, I ended up in Korea for my last assignment as the deputy chief of mission and uh, chargé d'affaires. So uh, it was uh, poetic in some ways, karma uh, in others. But that first tour was quite impressionable. And it put me in the direction I ended up going,
0: Yeah, Um, launching
1: launching me in some respects.
0: There's there's so much there. And I want to follow up on the consular piece in a second. Um, But actually, just a personal reflection. You said you originally wanted to go to China to learn Chinese and not in the context of the foreign service. But when I first was contemplating going to Korea, the idea was I'll go to South Korea for a year. I'll teach English. This is in 2009. But then I'll uh, then I'll move to China because I want to learn Mandarin. And once I learn Mandarin, you know, I'll just be employable anywhere. And, you know, this is... uh, Mm -hmm. Just this idea I had, and of course I arrive in Korea. I was bitten by the Korean bu- bug, and and the rest is history. It's become my my profession, my calling, and a place I hold sort of you know really close to heart. It's like a, a, a home away from home for me. Um, that's sort of a funny uh, just reflection that I have. You never know where to. fate will take you. You never know. Um, the best laid plans. Um, so I I I did allude to in this. Sort of percolating context, still Cold War, uh, a bit of opening up politically, the promise of future liberalization. There was a degree of anti-American sentiment, actually quite robust, that was beginning to emerge, and this was, you know, manifest in different ways: USIS buildings, US Information Service libraries, attacked or occupied at different points. Oftentimes, by younger South Koreans students who were considered the more radical group, who held um, some of these anti-American views, and so I was curious when you were there working in the capacity that you did, did you have interactions with some of these these students? What impression did they leave on you, and and how did you observe generational differences between? Say these students and maybe their their parents and, and grandparents sure. generation.
1: J- just before I get to the students, I mean more contextual than contextualizing uh, the scene at the time. You're right. It, it was an authoritarian government, the Fifth Republic under Chun Doo uh, He came to power in uh, in the ways described in the history books uh, with the assassination of his predecessor Park chun Hee. There was a vacuum and uh, the opportunistic uh, general. Chun took advantage of it plenty of movies, Korean movies and others out there that document the drama surrounding that but he came to power uh, in a very ruthless way and um, ran the country in similar ways although he kept much of Park Chung-hee's uh, policy legacy intact in which you know one of the uh, saving graces of that was the emphasis on infrastructure education and economic development. And as you mentioned early on Korea was one of the gangbuster four Tigers growth rates in double figures for a decade plus, and that continued on. But underneath that, or over that, was a, a straitjacket of a political environment that, of course, brought has brought uh, protest, some of it violent, for years, if not decades before that. I mean, Korea was birthed you know, in its modern incarnation in a very turbulent period among Koreans as well as through external events, too. So yes, I got there in 80, uh, 84, the memories of Kwangju incident in mm-hmm. May of 2000 uh, 2019 uh, 1980 mm-hmm. were still vivid in the consular section you know my encounters were students were largely of you know of those uh, uh, who were looking to go to the United States to study mm. back then it was hard for Koreans to travel independently unless you had a specific purpose business education there was no luxury travel you couldn't get a passport mm. they um, they made it very difficult you had to have you know clear reasons and have the demonstrated, uh, let's say, resources to support your trip because they didn't want people taking money out of the country in any measurable sure. way. They, you sure. know, they wanted those reserves remaining in the country. Um, so it was hard to travel. Most of the work in the concert section, at least a, a high priority, was the immigrant visa business we were in. Many Koreans immigrating to the states through relatives who had gone early and they're bringing over. So the tourism factor was was, was much lower. And mm-hmm. students, of course, were a high priority. We you know were very receptive to making sure uh, Koreans uh, could get to the U.S. Of course, qualified Koreans. But the, the, the regulations are quite strict on making sure bona fide uh, students and not people looking to get around uh, other limitations uh, to uh, immigrate to the states. Um, but. But well, the, the embassy programs, of course, like to tap into uh, so-called younger officers like myself. And I remember being uh, sent off to Kwangju Kong- back in, uh, I think, May or June of that year in 1984. Oh, okay. Sent down to our consulate. Oh, well, actually, we didn't have a consulate there. We had a uh, uh, cultural center and was asked to go down there and speak to students. You know, And this is you know, only three and a half Four years after the cultural center had been burned down, mm. as a collateral damage—or not even collateral, just damage—in um, mm. the wake of the Kwangju riots massacres. Mm. So I was, you know, bucked up, saying, "Just go down there, be yourself. You're young, they're young, and you're right." The, the, the students I met were pretty much my age. I was 26, and so went down and not knowing what to expect, uh, knowing a bit about the history and, and the. The tensions, palpable tensions, still down there, and particularly among the younger student groups, who held the U.S. responsible, uh, if not directly responsible, sure. sort of responsible at the next level for the allegation went uh, for allowing uh, the violence to occur mm. by not doing more to intervene. That's a separate story. We could spend. We could spend all podcast on spend that. All, all of that one. So, but uh, I went down and had a. Uh, uh, not knowing what to expect again, I had a very, uh, I think, in, interesting, productive, uh, constructive interaction with them. Uh, they were respectful, but they uh, they asked tough questions. They did get to the point like, why didn't the U.S. do more? And you know, I had, I had some points that I I put out there. I think w- with conviction. Mm. Uh, but I found it to be again a character building experience for me. But I hope it was an opportunity for them to see um, a younger American. You know, a diplomat representing the government, but nonetheless someone of their own co- age cohort mm. uh, to have a frank discussion. So it was fun looking back on it. Uh, at the time, you know, a little bit nervous, but uh, that, that comes with the turf. Yeah. But that was Kong back in 19, uh, 1984.
0: Okay. That's, uh, that reminds me of uh, Donald Gregg, who, of course, was the CIA station chief in the 70s and then later ambassador. ambassador. Yeah in an oral history interview talks about, and this is in 1990, I think he said, when he, yeah. or, or 89, when the National Assembly is looking back at the events in Gwangju again. Not not to get into that right now, but he took a trip down to Gwangju, and, and, and he gets into some detail about that in this interview. Uh, it's very interesting reading, but it's to know that you were down there five years prior to that, um, when, again, in some ways, this history is still being worked through, but was still so fresh literally chronologically right and 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 in that political context is is remarkable. I might ask you more about that once we once we get yeah. off of this. Um, but,
1: you know, shifting gears down to Pusan, you know, tensions were still raw. We had a, we just opened a consulate, but we'd had a cultural center presence there mm. uh, for years. Yeah. And we occupied right in the old part of town, an old Japanese bank building, a three-story mm. solid stone structure that had the library on the ground floor, the office on the second floor, and two apartments on the third floor. When we opened the consulate in uh, in 84, and I went down there in uh, February of 85, after my year in Seoul, I moved in. To the third floor of the, of the consulate building. Oh, the consulate right? okay. offices were on the second floor, and we still had the library. But it was uh, only a couple of years earlier uh, that uh, activists uh, set fire to the library, arsonists, if you will, uh, ended up killing a, a Korean patron, a young girl. That's right. And those two individuals were apprehended, caught, and served uh, serious time, although it's, you know, it. Not so long ago, one, one was released. Um, so again, reflective of some of the tensions, although over in Kyongsan-do, you know, over in southeastern uh, uh, South Korea, different fabric, different sure. political chemistry, sure. uh, different, differing attitudes uh, towards the U.S., but nonetheless, among a younger cohort, there were still activists out there. Um, coming home from, uh, I was taking uh, scuba diving lessons at the local YMCA in Pusan. Um, again, I'm, I'm digressing here, but I'll tell the story anyway. <laughs> um, the uh, coming back from YMCA lessons, I had to drive by the consulate on the way to the Siemens Club, which at that time was about the only uh, place you could get a, an American hamburger. Mm-hmm. This was a long time before McDonald's and uh, Burger King and even most Korean restaurants served. You know, Their proxy for hamburger was, uh, well, was very weak at that. Anyway, on the way to the Siemens Club, 6 o'clock at night, I'm driving right by the consulate uh my apartment's on the third floor it's a three-story building um and by the way this building now is a uh, a museum it was converted to a museum okay uh, we gave the property back in, That's aware of that. and kathy will yeah. she had a big hand in that yeah. uh when she, she was both the consul but also more importantly when she was the ambassador mm. um but uh it's now a museum but anyway i was driving by and as i was going by i wasn't paying attention to the embassy i mean the consulate and the road started getting bumpy and I noticed, like, oh, what's all this, like, gravel doing on the, uh, you know, I thought some of the construction site that they didn't clean up before they moved away or something. So I didn't think anything of it. And this is pre-cell phone days at all. So I'm off to the Siemens Club about a half a mile, mile away down to the waterfront. Um, no one knows where I'm at. Uh, I, I come back an hour or two later, and the, the consulate is ringed by soldiers and police, shoulder to shoulder with their guns. And what had happened was... At the moment, just uh, before I drove over the gravelly road, a mini little dump truck had come by with rocks. Dumped, and then activist students, a group came out and fired rocks for 30 seconds, 45 seconds okay. at, the, uh, at the consulate my apartment uh damaged some windows nothing severe but it was a statement they were making and we were pretty heavily guarded the police went out and did their thing and then of sure. course they brought in the heavy heavy troops and uh I pulled in and you know finding out what was happened and my boss the consul was pulled in from he lived on the base which was a mm-hmm. um, 5 miles away at least so anyway just another you know uh, symptom slightly different than Kwangju but nonetheless it reflects sort of you know there are pockets yeah. Of this kind of activity scattered around Korea, certainly in the southeast and southwest uh, in those days. So, uh, yeah, up in Seoul. Yeah. Last anecdote.
0: Yeah, no, please. I, this is fantastic. Last
1: anecdote because there are lots of them. November 1984. Walking out of the embassy, cold, uh, cold low ceiling, cloudy day. Mm-hmm. Walking up Kwangamun to go to the, the, uh, our compound middle of rush hour 5 o'clock 5.30 in the afternoon and all of a sudden from four or five buildings high rise buildings the government office building right across from where the general uh, the, uh, now where the prime minister sits it's called the general government building mm-hmm. anti-aircraft fire starts firing okay. choo, 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 with tracer shell. you can see the tracer shells mm-hmm. firing into triangulating at some point in the clouds at 5 o'clock in the afternoon in a major city you're like, what the yeah. You know, is, it, is this going down now? Is it this is it? And then it stopped and people went about their business. And it turned out, we only learned a few days later, uh, that uh, a U.S. helicopter coming back from the DMZ had strayed into restricted airspace. And the Korean, you know, uh, SOPs, the military around the Blue House area were, mm-hmm. you know, shoot first, ask questions later. Didn't
0: take any chances.
1: Fortunately, didn't hit it. Yeah. But anyway, just another signpost out there that, yes, we are 30 miles from the DMZ. Yeah. Yes, there are student activists out there with tear gas in the background. So, mm. again, it, it paints a picture of a very lively, uh, you know, dynamic environment. And... Uh,
0: yeah, it was fun. Yeah. I, I that's uh again this is uh I'd be I'd be derelict to my duty as podcast host not to push us along but I I, I got it. See. I, I, the I risk do to... want I actually want to sit in this history but Okay, got it. We'll the, it yeah, in the interest of of uh of moving forward but um this is just so much rich detailed history obviously. Um but after this first post in, in Korea from 84 to 86 yeah. um you would go on to serve in Indonesia, Japan, at the Japan desk, at the State Department, um, You know, which of course would afford you a broader perspective, and, and I kind of do want to circle back and touch on that a bit later. Um, but you then returned next to South Korea um, as the Senior Trade Officer and Deputy Economic Counselor at the US Embassy, and this is from 1997 to 2000. Korea watchers know what occurred in this period, but just a little background. Once again, you found yourself in the country during a, a, a very vibrant but also tumultuous period. It seems like you could say this for almost any grouping of years in Korea, but this Absolutely. particularly so. The East Asian financial crisis had spread from Southeast Asia to Korea, where they dubbed it, of course, the IMF crisis. Um, longtime political dissident Kim Dae-jung had successfully run for the presidency in the 97 election, took office in early '98. This was a a key marker in the country's uh, democratic consolidation, which is you know the 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 peaceful transition of power from the ruling to the opposition party. Um, And and moreover, uh, President Kim came into office really intent to fundamentally reorient inter-Korean relations and engagement with North Korea under his Sunshine Policy. Uh, And so you arrive, and and the first question I want to ask is a little sort of step back, but historically speaking. Korea has often been seen by U.S. officials through a, a much broader regional and uh, sort of strategic prism, uh, it often as sort of derivative of, or even in some ways, people might take issue with this language, but subordinate to wider interests, um, and to a degree that that is even the case today. Um, however, um, in a lot of my own research and conversations with folks like yourself um, and others, the East Asian financial crisis, alongside, of course, South Korea's remarkable economic growth and its democratization, but the crisis itself is often cited as really a key t- turning point where this attitude among U.S. officials began to sort of shift, where they started to grapple with the inherent importance, the innate importance of S- South Korea itself, right? Either as risk in the case of mm-hmm. financial crisis, but also as you know the, all the advantageous positive uh, qualities of the place, and so I was curious: Did you, did you sort of? Is this an accurate characterization? And, and did, w- to what degree did you observe this type of shift in, in thinking and perspective?
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, in retrospect, uh, you can pinpoint this shift, both economic, political, and psychological, uh, in Korea uh, up until then you know, notwithstanding its political shortcomings in the 80s into the early 90s. And, of course, the transition from Chun to No to Kim jong sam uh, was remarkable. But it wasn't complete until Kim Dae-jung mm. uh, was elected, I think, where it, a true opposition from Chola yeah. You yeah. Know, came to power. And you know, But I, I think the, the crisis, again, uh, it, it reared its head first in Southeast Asia. And automatically, the experts, the economic uh, PhDs and others, the, the the crew globally, but those working in Korea who had all been educated in, in Berkeley and, you know, had got their degrees, uh, their PhDs uh, in the West, in the U.S., uh, identified the problem as the Southeast Asia problem. You know, these were less mature economies, less advanced, and it wouldn't hit Korea. But, of course, it did. Korea was... corporate world was highly leveraged, and Mm. it was in a precarious financial situation, even though we didn't perceive it as such. But when it hit Korea, the alarm bells went off, not just in Korea, but Washington, New York, globally, like, oh, we can maybe manage the Southeast Asia piece, but if it hits Korea, this is going to have global uh, consequences, and it did. So the US recognizes the import of Korea's salvation economically or, or okay. continued, I mean, salvaging Korea from the depths of the, of the economic crisis it was in, was very clear. And I was there in the econ section uh, with our team. We had a counselor. Uh, at that time, I was uh, the senior trade officer. I moved in to be the, uh, the deputy after the deputy left a uh, mm-hmm. year and a half later. And, but we were all in, in this together. And it was one of the first times ever that economic issues became the priority of the relationship alliance, North Korea, actually were back burner mm. in, in, in a relative way. So econ issues dominated. We had high, high, high level teams coming out. Uh, I mentioned this before, but uh, I was a control officer for Larry Summers. Uh, he came out in January of 98 uh, mm. to meet uh, with the economic team in power, the uh, the current, or the, at that time, the existing incumbent uh, administration of Kim jong Sam. but he also wanted to meet with the new team. But they weren't in place yet. So we uh, we took Larry Summers uh, up to Ilsan, which is about 10, 15 miles north of Seoul, where Kim President-elect Kim Dae-jung was living in an apartment, a rather modest apartment with his wife. So we went up there and spent uh, an hour in his living room uh, as Larry Summers diplomatically, even if that may be hard to believe, Larry Summers. Um, Laying out sort of the broader context of what was going on and what we've been doing and what sort of the expectation, not just the U.S. would be, but what the global community would be looking at Korea for, and we were there to help. So it was a, it was a, a key moment in the beginning of a long set of discussions. Um, Korea, you know, the Koreans had to do a lot of soul searching, uh, the model... Had been broken mm-hmm. you know that had propelled them for the last 25 30 years on this rocket trajectory of growth suddenly oh what did we do wrong the scenes of ajima grandmothers out there collecting gold uh, and offering that family gold uh family heirlooms boiling them down or melting them down um uh, hit a chord. I mean, in the big scheme of things, it didn't make so much of a difference, but on the confidence-building side, it was huge because mm-hmm. it reflected, you know, it's one of those rare moments we are really all in this together. As diplomats living there, getting paid in U.S. dollars, it felt almost guilty. The uh, the one I think peaked out, and we were over with a team from Treasury, and uh, the Fed. We were out in Quachon. Uh, Back where all that was sort of the the, the second city before Sejong, many years later, sure. where the bureaucrats were located, we went out there and we were sitting in the offices out there and watching the won. I think hit rock bottom at about mm. nineteen ninety, 1990, almost nineteen ninety nine, mm. to the dollar. Okay, um, and so for for expats getting paid in dollars, you know, while we were living high on the hog, but sure. I think we we had this unwritten rule that let's be careful out there and let's not flaunt or show our increased purchasing power in ostentatious ways. So it was a bonding moment for many Koreans. It took a lot of effort and work and sacrifice. Many corporations uh, ended up being restructured or going out the window. Daewoo Corporation was not long for the world, and it was one of its flagship companies outside in the in the trading world, shipbuilding, textiles, electronics, even some automobiles. They were dabbling in. So yeah, it was a rough period for them, but they got through it, and I think that uh, obviously reflects very well on Korea, and it it, it demonstrates this sort of this fiber, this resilience. Mm. Uh, When the going gets tough, the tough get going, and Koreans are pretty tough, even if they're squabbling among themselves which is almost always the case, uh, they, f- they, they find this way to pull themselves up. And I think it's, you know, it, it's gotten them through a lot of difficult patches, uh, and some they're still working on. Sure. Um, so uh, this was, yeah, the first big international crisis uh, outside of the political world uh, that Korea had to deal with. And I think, you know, it's, it's almost a textbook case. Uh, of how to do it, but it, uh, it was six months to a year, two years worth of struggle to really pull themselves up. And there are those, of course, who uh, point fingers at the US, point fingers at the IMF that we imposed uh, too harsh a straitjacket, economic sure, straitjacket sure. on restructuring uh, that we could have done less of. But I think in the long run, you know, it, it paid dividends. And there's a, in some quarters, a grudging respect and appreciation for what was done. But you hear, the, you know, some people just glibly say, oh, the IMF crisis, the you know, IMF yeah didn't well, help us out. Uh, yeah. a cathartic moment, uh, yeah, yeah. for sure. But yes, and Korea came of age, and Korea's I think put its mark you know on the map in a way they didn't want to, but it was there. Korea's important. It recovered. and then it you know it with those modifications, put itself on a new trajectory, not as sharp and steep and fast, but nonetheless maybe a more sustainable trajectory. and as its economy broadened blossomed and yeah. uh, they looked to new areas that were not so let's say labor intensive so yeah yeah and then it was gone and then uh, Kim Dae-jung did his piece and this, the sunshine policy and um so yeah there's again trying to connect these threads here
0: yeah there's uh
1: what have i missed here in your in sort of your bigger no 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 question?
0: no that's i mean that's that that that's a very thorough response to that specific question i think Correct me if I'm wrong if I'm if I'm not mis- I I don't think I'm mistaken that at the time that the IMF loan to the tune of 53 54 billion was the single largest one they'd ever given up to that point in time it's yeah. since of course been surpassed as sure. we've gone through multiple crises no. uh you know global crises but at that time it really was um this this next question it in some ways touches on similar themes but maybe shifts the the lens a little bit um and it also builds a little bit on my question from your earlier time there, um, which is how did you perceive South Korean attitudes toward the United States during this period? So just to expand on that, because you did sort of allude to this just, just now, but it's South Korea's democratization uh, was rightly cited then and and even more so today as a, a key source of deepening ties between the US and South Korea, right? It had traditionally been this deep you know, security military alliance with shared threat, sort of overwhelming uh, reason for being for the relationship. But this was a new layer, was its political liberalization and shared democratic values. Um, but with this, of course, comes a wider array of public sentiments in the public sphere and a whole new generation of policymakers, legislators, civil society actors um, you're sort of coming into decision-making positions. And so I'm curious what effect you saw, it had, uh, you, you saw it have at the time or maybe in retrospect on the complications around alliance management, because I would imagine when we get to the level of sort of psychologies in the relationship, there were some growing pains, so to speak, and, and probably on both sides. And so as an American and as an American diplomat, I'm curious to what degree you you saw that on the American side of sort of grappling with this isn't this isn't our fathers korea anymore right this isn't our grandfather's korea and sort of but there are there are sort of deeply embedded ways of thinking that need to be that sometimes oftentimes are uh, die hard so to speak um, so d- d- to what degree could you maybe expand yeah. on that i mean you
1: can that question uh, that approach is relevant to today sure. you know, 10 sure. years sure. ago 15 sure. years, 30 years <laughs> of course. ago although the i think the changes were were, were much more dramatic you know coming into or out of the uh, of the authoritarian era to to the uh, semblance of democracy than true democracy in and of itself you know our relationship is unique you know we're not physically part of the region you know we're, uh, we're newcomers so to speak sure uh, you know 150 years of That's I- new. interaction you know no. they've been uh, they've been dealing with their neighbors forever many times in ways that are not helpful or uh, oppressive and you know and Korea has been the proverbial shrimp you know sure for long periods very long period at least the perception of being a shrimp i think they they've always had a habit of underestimating themselves and even today that's uh, that feature you can you can you can tease out from korea they've done so much gone so far yet there's this sort of you know we we still have more to do or not 100 confident but back then yeah it was uh you know i think what talking about the relationship in general, but who we were dealing with you know, on a diplomatic front—very capable, highly educated, and Western-educated officials, academics, and intelligentsia—a uh, polity you know that uh, was just was well-read. In granted, they had their biases and they had their political pressures to behave and operate, and maybe even think in certain ways. But nonetheless, uh, great interlocutors for us. You know, to get through the crisis, you had to have the right people on. The other side of the economic crisis you had the counterparts there who were gonna have to do it you know all we were doing was sort of laying out the boundaries or the contours of the uh the assistance that the uh the west of the finan- international financial community prepared to provide mm. with some conditions and all so it's um you know it's uh it's it's been easier for us to, although the birthing of our modern relationship is the korean war and yes the recognition, the appreciation, the respect for what we did in the Korean War, and the sacrifice of our men, women, uh, treasure, blood uh, on behalf of Koreans, where, in in fact, that had never happened before in their history, where a third party had come in, uh, I can recall, to to do what they did, sacrifice on behalf of the Koreans, albeit we had our own uh, interests in play here, and they weren't necessarily all about Korea. In fact, maybe... There's less about Korea here than, than meets the eye, yeah. given that we, uh, you know, arbitrarily divided the peninsula in 1945 without too much thought. Sure. Uh, and then looked the other way as we were reconstituting Japan and mm-hmm. let Korea to its own devices or Kim Il-sung's devices with heavy backing from uh, Moscow and, and, and from Beijing. You know, what, what were we doing in that five-year, four or five-year period? And that created problems, the transition from occupation to uh, the first, the, the first republic uh, of Sigmund Rhee and all, which then played out many <laughs> decades, still playing out decades mm-hmm. decades later. So at, on one hand, yes, thank you, America. We love you. You're the land of opportunity. Many of our, our children uh, have, are being educated. We appreciate the value you stand for. But then, you know, there's this, this other side of the Korean psyche. And, it, it, uh, you know, yeah, the Americans are great, our only partner, our only true friend, our only ally. But, gee, they they could always do better. You know, it's a little disappointment, sometimes a lot of disappointment, depending upon where you're from, and particularly in the transition to democracy uh, later on in the uh, 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. you know, where security issues, alliance issues, Cold War issues um, overrode, you know, the yearnings of a young nation to recognize its or uh, realize its opportunity for democracy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, living and working, you were there in 2009 uh, I, and afterwards, I was there 84 and afterwards. You would get vestiges of this anti American f- feel, but I never felt it personally. I mean, there was all op- I was dating my wife. Uh, I, I, I I don't know if you know, I've married a Korean woman. Um, I do know. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And uh, that, of course, has shaped other aspects of my thought and experiences uh, with her family uh, in Korea. But, you know, s- some of the, the issues of dating a Korean woman, a, a foreign man, a, a Western man with a Korean woman, you know, you'll get. Some pushback on that, maybe some comments and all that, but I never felt, uh, let's say, out of out of place or uh, in, in any risk. Other than if you were in a place you shouldn't be at a demonstration. So, yeah, the, the feeling has always been positive. The alliance is always generally a good thing. Uh, is the attitude? Yes, we want the Americans here, but you know, could you? dial it in a little differently here and there. Mm. And, you know, we've reached a point now where um, almost all the bases are consolidated and have moved south. So the sure. visible presence of America in the form of GIs is now a much diminished thing. I've wandered off of your key point. No, here that's okay. Bit. I mean, this is... Um, but, um, but Korea coming of age, yes. Yeah. Uh, 1998 was one of the first big markers. And it's It's been growing leaps and bounds uh, since then. Now, you know, the 10th largest economy in the world, our sixth largest trading partner, I guess the sixth or seventh biggest military, which, you know, uh, is there for a reason. And we wish the reason wasn't there, but it is. So Korea has a big uh, big footprint, a much bigger footprint. But, you know, those seeds for today's successes planted in the 70s and 80s where Korea took its economic business model uh, overseas. You know, they were the rags to riches story, the miracle and the harm. I mean, people, you know, 1960, who were the top uh, the top prospects for future success? Burma and the Philippines, you know, the yeah, World Bank. Yeah, survey. Sure, sure. And Korea was a basket case. You know, yeah. after 10 years of heavy U.S. aid, they weren't getting any traction. It yeah. Unfortunately, it took a dictator to come in and start cracking heads and building roads and yeah. uh, among other things. But nonetheless, uh, they are where
0: they are through hard work. And, yeah. But when you think about the compressed modernity and processes we're talking about, right? And how forced-paced industrialization within a generation led by and dictated by an authoritarian leader. And this itself helps in some ways lay the groundwork for political liberalization at a later date. Um, and there are, of course, all sorts of debates about this. The point being, it's just the the inner combination of all these different forces in such a, by American standards, as young a country as we are, such a compressed period of time is what makes Korea, to me, such an endlessly fascinating place, even if frustrating at times, um, just... Uh, it makes analysis difficult, too, because you can't touch one piece like our conversation is demonstrating without then getting into another because they are so intertwined.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, and I get to see some of that firsthand in dealing, uh, or not dealing, but in, in learning to know uh, my uh, wife, her family, her parents who were mm-hmm. from the, the old generation um, and how they've coped with it all. Yeah. Well, cope that's... with constant change. Yeah. We're talking about
0: interchangeably this sort of compressed change on a high level you know, high diplomatic level historical trends. But then to hear just the deeply human personal mm-hmm. vignette mm-hmm. element of this mm-hmm. is really, I'm most interested in that, but it's not what I study most directly. So this is all wonderful to to engage. But that's the fabric of the relationship. It's the fabric it, it's, of the relationship. It's, it's, it's thousands you know, or yeah.
1: millions of Interpersonal well, relationships. Exactly, exactly.
0: Multiply that by so many. Yeah.
1: And they they keep deepening. You know, yeah. the diaspora in the U.S. has grown and grown. The other side of this. And yeah. we, we supported that through a very a liberal immigration policy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that would be possible today, but Korea got over that hump. And all those who, many who wanted to go went and... We're prospering through this richness and diversity with, with Korea. So that's, yeah. those, those, are, that's the, uh, those are the links, the yeah. connections that sustain the relationship in many ways. Yeah. Um,
0: this concludes part one of my interview with Rob Rabson. Tune into part two of our conversation, which covers Rob's time as the director of the Office of Korean Affairs in 2012, up to his final assignment as acting ambassador in the U.S. Embassy in Seoul. In addition, keep an eye on our podcast feed for more Rethinking Korea content.